Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and as ever I'm joined by Tom Slater, Spike's deputy editor and host of the Last Orders podcast. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the show, George H.W. Bush, the fall of Emmanuel Macron and Peter's war on meat-based metaphors. President George H.W. Bush, the last president from the greatest generation. But he was a good man. He was fundamentally a decent man. As America pulls back under Donald Trump, Friday marked that sharp split. We remember his life and his tremendous legacy and how his approach to leadership stands in stark contrast with the politics of today. George H.W. Bush, 41st President of the United States, died last week. The one-term president was derided in his time, but his obituaries have been more generous, hailing him as a model of civility and integrity. Tom, what do you make of these sudden reappraisals? When, in some respects, they're always inevitable, of course, when a president dies, especially one who was president a very significant time in US history. There's going to be a more generous assessment, shall we say. There's going to be um, more attempts to kind of not speak ill of the dead I guess is a pretty normal instinct and also we we have to remember in Britain I think that the US presidency is treated with a certain amount more deference and sense of being revered um, as an institution as being head of state than perhaps we might expect from a prime minister dying etc that said I think the response has been interesting not just because it's been overly generous in many places which it has you know a stressing of how honest this man was how civil he was many nudges and winks to the fact that the current occupant of the White House isn't any of those things but also so there does seem to be this kind of binary response, you know, either he was this wonderful man or he was, you know, evil, a warmonger, <laughs> all of these different types of things. I think what we're kind of seeing is a, a lack of an attempt to really look at him in any real depth. I mean, Frank Bruni wrote quite a good piece for the New York Times talking about whatever happened to Shades of Grey. And George H.W. Bush is a Shades of Grey type president. You know, he saw at the end of the Cold War, but did so with not very much aplomb, it's fair to say. Famously, when the Berlin Wall fell, he said it was a good development. And when pushed by the press as to why he wasn't more excited, he said, I'm elated. I'm just not an emotional kind of guy. You know, he was in many respects a foreign policy president, but really approached that as a kind of managerial role. You know, not there to upset the apple cart too much to kind of manage the changes geopolitically that were going on. But then again, I think the attempts more recently in the last couple of days to actually, you know, call into question the fact that he was this kind of, you know, perfect president that someone was making out is entirely understandable insofar as we saw this with the death of John McCain recently, mm. whereas this, there is this concerted effort because Trump is supposed to be held up as this completely aberrant, evil president to really do everything they can to present everything that came before him as far more um, unimpeachably brilliant um, than actually was before. So I get the tendency, particularly by someone on the left more recently, to try and knock down this more kind of genteel, wonderful image that is being presented to them. Well, it's interesting reading the kind of, like Tom says, reading the eulogies is the usual stuff, but there's a lot, I found that it was more about Trump than about Bush, mm. even if it was in a kind of subtle kind of a way. So I read something in the New York Times that said, you know, the death of George Bush is this the end of America as it used to be and should be in the future mm. you know harking back to what the golden time of not so long ago when life wasn't so much better in relation to you just look at the kind of things that um, Bush did even on a very small level on an issue like abortion um, he's got some similarities with Trump so he was previously pro-choice mm. and then decided he wanted to be president more than he cared about his pro-choice values and took on board a quite aggressively pro-life position from that point 
that's exactly what Trump has done. Uh, people criticize Trump for a negative campaigning. Bush engaged in that as well. We talk about Michael Dukakis. Kevin Yule's written a piece in Spikes detailing how <laughs> in order to uh, win an election, he went very hard on some of his opponents. So the whole idea of this being you know, a celebration of Bush and his presidency and his son crying at the mm. funeral, which is, you know, understandable, but it all had really heavily laden underneath it, the idea that this was a kind of what America should be and Trump is what America should not be. I mean, even the case of the BBC detailing the funeral and how it happened and making a lot about the fact of who Trump shook hands with, where Trump sat. You know, it's very obvious that this is about Trump rather yeah, than about absolutely. the guy who's died. And, th and there's definitely double standards here, you know, because what's really interesting about Trump is it's not to say that people don't criticise him for his policy decisions. Of course they do. But there is this tendency to talk about him on this kind of moral level, on the level of him being uncivil, mm. on the level of him being brash and rude, and how that is almost of a piece with everything bad that he's done. But as Ella was just saying there, you know, if you wanted to talk about some of the most negative things that are thrown at Trump, you could easily build a case that George H.W. Bush is as guilty as these things, as you were saying, the race against Dukakis yeah. was not only incredibly negative, but also was incredibly racially charged. Mm -hmm. So the presidency race in 1988, um, Bush's notoriously kind of scurrilous campaign chief really pushing this story about Willie Horton, who was a black convict who was released on a kind of furlough program in Massachusetts, where Dukakis was governor and ended up um, murdering someone and then raping his girlfriend repeatedly. Horrible story, but was used very much to associate this kind of aberrant black convict with this ACL you liberal that's effectively what they were trying to do we hear a lot these days about how you know trump inventing alternative facts and lying endlessly and misrepresenting things but what's interesting was in 1980 when um, bush was running for the presidency for the republican nomination against reagan he really laid into him on the basis of his economic plan he called it voodoo economics he said this is a nonsense and yet as soon as a few months down the line Reagan picked him as his uh, vice presidential candidate. He denied ever having said that. <laughs> and to the point where he said, go out and f you know, find me proof, which people did. And then he, his team claimed that he was just joking when he said it. So this idea that, again, that Trump effectively you know, invented lies and spin when he came into the White <laughs> all, House. All politicians were honest and good exactly. until 2016. <laughs> <laughs> it's just obviously completely ridiculous. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now about is Trump going to, you know, pardon Paul Manafort, his former campaign director, who is obviously being put through um, the legal ringer at the moment. At the end of George H.W. Bush's presidency, um, he pardoned a bunch of people who were implicated in the Iran-Contra scandal, of course, which also implicated him. So that's the thing about the nature of trying to present Trump and he's entirely moralistic and everyone else who came before him as the kind of antithesis of him, that there was this goodness in American political office, which he's just completely corroded. It's not difficult to build a case that, you know, they're as bad as each other, effectively. And of course, the other parallel to this was the, the recent death of John McCain, which you alluded to um, earlier, Tom. As most of us understood, this is one of the most hardline warmongers in American politics, which is, takes some doing, frankly. You know, there practically isn't a, a country that he hasn't called for the invasion of. He stood against Obama for, for president. But when it came to his death, Obama says, we were on the same team. We we're in favour of the same thing. And that does kind of raise the question of, um, well, why did you stand against this person in an election if there is no great overarching difference? It shows actually how similar the establishment are behind this kind of great lie of political difference and of kind of culture war um, anger. Yeah, I mean, John McCain's funeral was described as a meeting of the resistance. Mm -hmm. 
purely because Trump wasn't there. But yet this is the kind of world of US politics. Everything's defined by its relationship to Trump. So Mm. you can have someone like Obama giving a eulogy to someone like John McCain and it being sort of seen as normal when in in or in any other situation you'd think what these people were completely opposed and and you might kind of expect it i guess with um with obama you know he is part of the liberal establishment i guess but then you have even have figures like alexandria ocasio cortez who's supposed to be this great hope of the left and she described mccain as an unparalleled example mm. of human decency so that's going beyond not speaking ill of the dead and it seems that both with the death of george hw bush but also as you say john mccain you hear a lot of this discussion about the politics of consensus that we're effectively in a new age now in which bipartisan politics in which a more gentle polite kind of politics is really a, an end but you do have to ask yourself the question why that is that such a bad thing because Again, when you looked at the um, the kind of circus, really, that um, McCain's funeral turned into, with everyone kind of taking their chance up at the podium to take pot shots at Trump without ever naming him, um, all of the media excitement around that from nominally very liberal to progressive outlets, um, what you're effectively seeing is an establishment. What's kind of interesting about George H.W. Bush, Fruto Obama, is that they're kind of two different kinds of aristocracies, really. And it's interesting how easily they can meld. So, of course, George H.W., this kind of product of New England privilege, you know, Yale grad, you know, again, part of this kind of very wealthy, genteel aspect of Republican society. And then you have the Obamas, who are, again, more of this kind of new clerisy, this kind of professorial class, this kind of liberal establishment. And yet I think what the um, outpourings of affection for both H.W. and McCain kind of show is that those two things are actually incredibly similar. Mm. And that the reason they hate someone like Trump is that in his own blundering, uncouth and often quite grim way, he challenges that consensus. And that seems to be the thing that they're most afraid of. You're listening to the Spike Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps people find the show. Up next, Emmanuel Macron. French President Emmanuel Macron was hailed as the saviour of Europe, but his approval ratings have plummeted and now he's facing the most significant protests in France since 1968. Ella, what went wrong for Macron? <laughs> what, what's gone right for him? In <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I say that with great pleasure because I think lots of people like us are watching the Gilets Jaunes protests and kind of cheering them on. I mean, this is, we talked about this last week. This began as a kind of protest among some French people against hikes in fuel prices. Uh, there was sort of a people from all sides of the political divide being involved, but this has kind of spiraled and now the protests are getting bigger, they're getting more serious. And importantly... Macron has started to clamp down on them quite brutally. So we've got reports of not just tear gas, water cannons, but rubber bullets being fired at protesters. Two people have died. Yes, there's a lot of violence coming from the protesters' side, but the response of Macron to clamp down on these protests has been really, really shocking. And he has had to take a step back in relation to uh, the planned fuel duty rise. First, he said he was going to take it away for six months. Now it's there's a U-turn. It's going to be removed for at least a year. But there's no sign of the protesters stopping. I think quite rightly, they feel like they've got him on the ropes and they should keep pushing. Fraser, you wrote an article on Spike this week about it, about how, you know, lots of people do condemn the violence that's happened within the protests. But 72% of French people are behind them. Yes, this is a row about fuel prices. But more generally, I think it's come to express a deep desire to kind of challenge Macron, challenge his way of politics and uh, challenge the kind of 
idea that the technocrat like him can come in, uh, essentially railroad over French voters, just say, this is what I'm going Mm. to do. I'm going to make France a really great place for a wealthy businessman. You know, I can't see this as anything more than a really positive grassroots kind of challenge to the European elite, which Macron basically symbolises. Yeah, that's right. There's always been so much more excitement for mm. Macron outside of France than, than within it. And, you know, lots of people have been excitedly retweeting Vince Cable from a couple of years ago saying that I can offer the same formula <laughs> as Macron, <laughs> as if that is somehow an attractive prospect. No, definitely. I think what's kind of interesting is, first of all, the level of surprise from commentators that Macron is un- as unpopular as he is. And it's not even just a case of reading runes, it's just a case of reading the polls. Mm. <laughs> In his election, his much vaunted election, there were um, a record three million blank votes in the legislative elections that followed. It had the lowest turnout in history of the fifth republic and of course when you're considering who he was up against in the form of marine le pen it's quite clear why people would endorse him over the effective successor to a neo-fascist party i mean there was a ipsos study which found that just 16 percent of his vote was actually an endorsement of his program and 43 percent of it was about just opposition to marine le pen and yet the kind of love bombing of him is so intense that they seem entirely blind to this but i think the point that ella makes is really important insofar as deep down that's not really what Um, Western liberals wanted from Macron. They didn't Mm. necessarily want a man of the people. They wanted someone who would not necessarily, you know, win the argument against populism, but someone who would use the power of his position to kind of force through the things that needed to be done to reform the Eurozone, to put things back on an easier footing, to push through the kind of reforms that they felt that the French economy needed, etc. And it's quite and he kind of embodies that entirely, this very kind of kingly persona he has, you know, summoning all of the MPs to Versailles in the mm. manner of Louis the Fourteenth. Um, he is this kind of, as Politico once put it, a liberal strongman. And that's why they've always liked him and why I think ultimately they were blind or actually not that bothered about how unpopular he was from the beginning of his presidency. Much of his time in power has been concentrated on foreign affairs and, and the European Union. But the problem is that even leaders in Germany and other parts of Europe are recognising that if he cannot keep on top of things at home, then he has absolutely no authority to pursue his ambitions in the European Union. I think this is the tension that's always been there within him, that he doesn't particularly want to be the French president. He wants yeah. to be the EU's golden boy. He yeah. wants mm. to, that's where his interests lie politically, not necessarily with popularity at home. Macron's relationship with the public is testy at best. He has always been very haughty whenever he comes across members of the public. So, you know, there was one famous case of a young young gardener says he can't get a job. Youth unemployment is really, really yeah. high in France. You know, it's about 25%. Unemployment in general is at 10%. And Macron just says, oh, you know, if I walk over the road, I can get you a job. It's easy. I know loads of cafes have got work. Just go there, you know, chop, chop kind of thing. <laughs> uh, he, and even when he's trying to, you know, be nice about poor or working class people. He was giving a speech to a group of techies and he said, you know, you can't forget about the left behind people. And he, he goes on to this really, talk about this really bizarre metaphor of the train station. You know, life is like mm. a train station and there's a whole mix of people. There are some people like you, successful people, and then there are the people who are nothing. <laughs> and so I've been pleased to see some of the gilets jaunes have been holding up signs, you know, saying we are the nothings, yeah. you know, coming back to get you. He's he just has this kind of monarchical style, and mm. it, it's completely, completely bizarre that he he was ever feted by you know people who 
call themselves liberal or even centre-left in the first place. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting was a lot of the discussion around the time of his election was about how he was actually a product of the anti-establishment backlash. Yeah. He was a um, an example of how you could do it from the centre, how you could challenge the political elite who everyone is really angry about, but guide it as these people would see in a far more liberal and constructive kind of way. And what's kind of interesting is that he did, he's a kind of perfect case study of a third way politician. He mm. obviously wanted to emulate Blair insofar as third way politics, kind of technocratic politics, centrist politics, does try to respond to a mood of anti-politics, of a mood of anger. You know, mm. on Marsh would go around talking to people on the doorstep. He, Macron in the campaign labelled himself the kind of nation's therapist. I want to know what's <laughs> ailing you. But at the same time, we saw this with Blair, we're seeing this with Macron as well. It's an attempt to exploit a mood of anti-politics to actually, rather than what the populace might want to do as far as put more power in people's hands, it's to take more of it away, to do what needs to be done. And the fact that not only did he take on this almost cartoonish, monarchical kind of um, affect after his election, but also his moves to try and shore up the power of the executive by kind of fiddling around with the powers of parliament, his push for more Eurozone integration, despite the fact dissatisfaction with the EU has been higher in France, even than in Britain for quite a long time. Mm. I think it's it's that interesting kind of paradox of, of the technocratic third way, which is to say it tries to harness an anti-establishment mood, but to a thoroughly kind of establishment agenda. And what I think is interesting about the Gilets jaunes protest is it shows that whilst that might have worked 10 or 15 years ago, it's certainly not going to work now. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to make a donation, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Up next, Peter. The animal rights group, Peter want to persuade the public to stop using anti-animal language. <laughs> they argue that phrases like flogging a dead horse contribute to a culture of speciesism which downplays animal cruelty. So they've even created some exciting alternatives, like bring home the bacon should be bring home the bagels, be the guinea pig should be be the test tube, Kill two birds with one stone. See, this doesn't quite work for me. It says feed two birds with one scone. And I pronounce it scone, not scone. <laughs> so it doesn't rhyme. <laughs> take the bull by the horns. Take the flower by the thorns. I mean, what, what do we make of this? Oh, it's hilarious. No, but it's what's kind of funny about it is that I'm sure we might have noticed this recently that is um, groups like Peter, vegan campaign groups, etc., have been trying to very um, proactively kind of adopt the language of... Um, for lack of a better phrase, kind of social justice mm. campaigning. And to really, what's interesting about this, this is effectively a list of animal microaggressions, <laughs> which is funny when you're talking about animals who can't understand language mm. in the same way. So it's this incredibly bizarre attempt to kind of co-opt that agenda. But what's kind of interesting about it is that despite the fact that, you know, veganism is very popular right now, you could say that animal rights is kind of on the up. It's quite trendy, especially amongst the groups of people they're trying to appeal to with this kind of ridiculous campaign. This is the point at which they overreach, yeah. <laughs> actually. You know, when you hear vegans compare, you know... Um, farming and livestock to chattel slavery when you see people try to compare dairy farming to industrialized rape even the most solidly pc student activist thinks hold on a second there and i think the backlash we've seen to this hilarious graphic um, <laughs> shows that even they're capable of kind of pushing the boat out too far a little bit 
it's kind of a, an example of where isms go mad. I mean, speciesism is <laughs> really crazy. But we spend a lot of our time criticizing, you know, the kind of things that like I remember lists coming out about gender neutral pronouns and don't mm. say post men, yeah. post man, say post people, <laughs> don't say police man, say police officer, you know, all that kind of stuff. And this is sort of in that line. However, I do think that there's something in some people have been saying you're comparing the struggle of animals mm. to the struggle yeah. of black people or women. Hang on a minute. Now, I don't want to get into that whole kind of offense uh, scenario, but there's something in that, that you, the idea that you could compare um, animals' lives, animals' consciousness, yeah. <laughs> animals' feelings to that of human beings is pretty insulting. It is a racist comparison or a sexist comparison or a homophobic comparison when it's made. But, I, don't, I don't think we should shy away from No, I'm sure saying that that. it's certainly racially insensitive. I think that's quite clear. But the only thing is I think there's a kind of partial response to it because I think this whole idea mm. of speciesism is horrendous on the face of it insofar yeah. as I don't think it should be particularly controversial and I think people deep down know this to put human life on a higher pedestal than animal life. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I think anyone who in that kind of Sophie's Choice situation where it's like you can either kill the lamb or the baby, anyone who has to think twice I don't want anywhere around me. That's terrifying. So there is, but what's kind of slightly irritating about the backlash to this particular campaign is that it's purely on the basis of this is offensive to the minority groups or this mm. is offensive. This it's in, it's offensive in general because it's effectively trying to say that human suffering and animal suffering are exactly the same thing. But mm. you're right in to say that it is particularly grim ugly and boneheaded when you see these kinds of comparisons being made and also that peter have got form for this you know in the early 2000s around 2003 they launched this kind of exhibition come protest <laughs> installation called the holocaust on your plate um which was effectively putting up big hoardings of pictures of people in concentration camps next to pictures of you know slightly ropey looking calves and things and there was this immediate backlash they almost couldn't understand it but mm. of course i think the thing about these extreme examples is that they really get to grits with the centre of the kind of animal rights idea, which although people might be quite fond of animals, quite not want them to be mistreated, etc. When people like Peter go around effectively trying to put human suffering and animal suffering on a complete par, that's the point at which people say, hold on a second, and rightly so. It's interesting that I think I've heard more about vegans and animal rights and vegetarianism and militant veganism in the past sort of couple of months mm. than I ever have. Yeah, uh, And it's interesting to think about why that is because you've kind of in the rolling progress of the kind of as you have described it Tom the social justice kind of campaigns that isms coming out every day the move the kind of ugly wars within transgenderism within other areas of identity politics sort of natural that this would come out as well as another way in which you could seek offense argue about offense uh, at and mount a campaign as ridiculous as something like militant veganism. But you have to think that it, it kind of shows where we're at in relation to uh, offence culture, identity politics, even this is kind of being described as an identity politics for animals, um, because it's been encouraging that the backlash against it has been so widespread. Mm. And so many people are mm. saying, for God's sakes, at the same time, it's also interesting to note what a huge amount of media attention it's got. So yeah, it's it's a yeah. kind of example of how, as well as uh, this speciesism, lots of other isms get a huge amount of attention, a hu cause a huge amount of fuss. In reality, their effects and their influence on most people's lives is so very minimal and you know barely enough to make them chuckle. So it's a kind of it's a good example of <laughs> for me an encouraging example of how sensible the British public are in relation to just saying for God's sakes. 
been listening to the Spike podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? For your daily dose of Spiked, go to spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.